Welcome to the Jesus Calling Podcast. Today's guests both have a legacy of inspiring and moving people through entertainment, one through music and both through film, musician Bart Millard and actor Jim Caviezel. First up, we have Bart Millard, who is a Grammy-nominated singer-songwriter and the lead vocalist for the band Mercy Me. His mega-hit, I Can Only Imagine, has inspired millions of listeners with its joyful anticipation of heaven. Bart has now written a book about his life, which has also become a major motion picture that released this month in theaters. Uh, I'm Bart Millard. I'm a lead singer of the band Mercy Me uh, uh, for the last 24 years. Uh, married my wife Shannon for 20 years and have five amazing kids. And somehow I've worked my way into having a movie come out about my life and a book and all kinds of stuff. So here I am. The song I Can Only Imagine I wrote back in 1999, and, um, and it was written a, couple, a few years after my father passed away with cancer. Uh, I grew up in an abusive home. My parents divorced when I was three. I grew up with my dad, who was an abusive man, and, and uh, up until about my freshman year of high school when he was diagnosed with cancer. And, and um, it, I kind of got this front row seat to see the gospel transform him from this monster to this, you know, the one of my favorite people I've ever known and you know and my best friend and the guy I want to be like when I grow up and and uh, just to be able to see that transformation firsthand I always say it kind of set me on a war path for the gospel and like kind of change the trajectory of my life to where I'm still doing ministry because of I've, I've I've always said if the gospel would change him it could change anybody if someone had asked me you know who's the one person that God cannot reach I would have said it was my dad a hundred times out of a hundred and and just never you know I had no idea of the transformation that was literally taking place right in front of me over the about four or five years that he was alive. And um, and uh, if someone had said to me, told me when I was a freshman in high school, by the time you're a freshman in college, he is going to be your absolute hero and the greatest example of Christ that you'll ever know. I thought, there's no way, there's no way. And um, and only God could have been a part of that. He never went to church. He, we grew up going to church when I was young, but he stopped going. Um, I have an older brother, five years older. When he graduated high school, I was in seventh grade. I think it really broke my dad's heart. And and when it was just the two of us from that point on, between that and it was a year and a half later, he was diagnosed with cancer. And and I got really, really involved with the youth group, like obsessive, like it was it would keep me from having to go home. And I think in this weird way, my dad was almost jealous of that and just not a fan. And and so he's he didn't go to church very often and, and um you know, I used to sing in church in, a, in high school and, and uh, found out probably in the last year or two of his life that, you know, that he would listen to, they, they would broadcast on the radio, AM station, and, and they would listen every morning and he would you know, keep listening to the pastor preach afterwards and stuff. And, and, um, and yeah, just over time, you know, I didn't know we owned a Bible in our house and I would find him falling asleep with his face in the Word every night. And I could hear him praying for my brother and I and my mom who divorced when I was three, you know, on a regular basis. I'm like, what in the world's going on? And, uh, and so even though I was involved with church and I love Jesus, I was kind of oblivious to that this was taking place. I wish I could take credit and say that I did something, but I mean, other than him listening to me on the air, like I, it was never, it, it, I was so afraid of him, it never crossed my mind to, to think that there he had a chance. Maybe it's a prophet being without honor in his own home. I don't know, but it was just it, it, I didn't I never I never thought it would be me because I was so afraid of him. And you know, for a long time I didn't trust. I, I don't know if I even wanted grace to be for him because I was so hurt and angry and and uh, and when when he started when there was a, a, a definitely kind of a shift and his and his heart was changing. I remember being almost bitter about it because I thought. If anybody changes my dad, it, it better come from because I was like this little holier now, like you know, youth group kid, and 
And it just the fact that it was happening without me not really being aware of it, even though he would say it's because I was watching you and I was watching you cling to this truth, going through this horrible stuff. He would say that it was I was a big part of that, but it wasn't intentional on my part. You know, I was just trying to get by and and um, you know maybe that's the best way. He said that he saw me being that. You know, when people were watching, when people weren't, and it and it did something to him. I don't know, but wish I could say I had a planned out thing, but I didn't. In my senior in high school, um, I was I committed to go to. I went to about I think six different schools in about a about a year and a half, which is weird. But uh, I committed to go to. Uh, so I think which one's first? It's been so long. I think it was Texas A and M, um, and. And I went out to do like the fish camp, the freshman stuff, and my dad got really, really sick. And so I was like, I can't miss it. So I came back because it was just my dad and I just lived together. It was just us. And then um, he would get better. Had these moments, we get better, get worse. And and um, and then I kind of let that one pass. And he was like, You can't be doing this. You know, you've got to, you know, wherever you need to go. So I had an opportunity to possibly go to Baylor. And so I checked in on that and could, was able to enroll late. But then he took another turn before I even got, like, I think I was literally driving to Waco when it happened. And so I came back home, I was like, you know, that's it. I'm gonna, I'm just gonna, the East Texas State University was 10 minutes away. So like, I'm just gonna enroll here and stay with you. And, and unfortunately he passed away in November of my, beginning of my freshman year in college. The song kind of came about after my father passed away, we were leaving the gravesite. My grandmother said, I can only imagine what Bub's seeing right now. And uh, as a 19 year old, I became obsessed with heaven and not like in a, I'm a better Christian than other people. It was more this OCD kind of, it was just a way to cope. And, and so I became consumed with my dad, you know, almost telling myself this was, he's better off. He's better off, you know, like a lot of us do. And, and, and dreaming of him just being whole and seeing what he's seeing. And that was way easier to swallow than an empty bedroom. And so uh, for years I would, if I had a pen in my hand, I would write the phrase I can only imagine down in anything. If I was on hold on the phone, I'd be writing it. I've carved it in my desk when I was in college and just always wrote it. My grandmother always thought it was practice my autograph, but it was literally writing that phrase. And um, and a few years later, the, we started Mercy Me, and um, we were we were needing one more song on independent record. And I had three journals that I carried before smartphones, and I carry these three journals to write lyrics. And every page of every journal had I can imagine written on it some way, shape, or form. And and so I was really frustrated because I just wanted a blank page. And it took me a second to kind of like, okay, I get it, God. This is, and it was just, it, it took about 10 minutes to write, um, but it had been in my heart for quite some time. And so uh, after he passed away, uh, my grandmother and myself, we, I just had to stick around and just take care of everything. And, and you know, and so then by the spring of, that was 91, so the spring of 92, my youth pastor that I, that I had for years, my senior year, he moved to another church in Florida. And so he called me and said, hey man, why don't you come? And Because I was singing a little bit, like like solos in church. He goes, why don't you come for spring break and just sing for our youth group? Just do, just get out of Greenville. And so I went to visit him. And uh, first time I'd ever seen like a live uh, worship band. It, you know, this is way before worship bands were the norm. And I was like, man, this is really great. These kids are really good. And I, and Anyway, so he offered me a job, and so I moved to Lakeland, Florida, to work in a church for a while. And that's why I started playing around with live band, just you know, helping kids out and stuff. And uh, thing, I went to Florida Southern College briefly, and then realized I'm going to be paying that off the rest of my life. So I ended up with a community college. And then at some point, which is where the band got its name, I told my grandmother, I said, I think I'm going to take, in my sophomore year, I was going to take this one semester off just to figure things out. And she goes, what are you going to do? And I said, like, well, I think I'm going to, I might start a band. And she said, mercy me, why don't you get a real job? And uh, I was like, oh man, I think I got the band name. And so, uh, 
And so, yeah, I guess I'm still a sophomore in college. It keeps me young. But uh, we started doing playing around churches in Florida. And uh, actually, we weren't Mercy Me yet. We were just a worship band, the church band, and played around. And then at some point, I met a ministry out of Oklahoma that was passing through promoting like teen missions and stuff like that overseas. And I started working with them kind of on the side when they would do like weekend conferences. And that's where I met Jim, our keyboard player. And so we started Mercy Me like that following in 94, the following year. And um thought, well, I live in Florida. If for some reason that we get busier, Oklahoma City's more centrally located because we had high hopes at the time. So Mike, who was in the youth group in Florida, our guitar player, we both moved to Oklahoma City in 94, started the band, lived in an abandoned daycare center. That's the only place we could find to live. And we record albums in one end and live in the other one. We made six albums on our own. And it was, I guess, 99 or two, probably 2000 when we signed a record deal and been hanging on for the ride ever since. We were approached about making the movie eight years ago. Um, a production company, a lady out of, of California, saw me kind of sharing part of my story on stage one night, and she she approached me and said, "I I, I want to try. I think there might be a movie in this." And we were like, "No, there's no way. Like, whatever, you know." And and so she goes, "No, I'm really going to try." And it's like, "All right, great." So for five years, she literally would call me about once or twice a year, saying, "I still haven't forgotten about you. I'm still trying to figure it out." And we just knew there's no. It's just not going to happen. I mean, that's we. It, it, Sadly, it's not the first time someone said, hey, I think we want to make a movie or whatever, but like some college film kid or whatever, you know. And so we were like, whatever. And then about three years ago when the Irwin brothers got involved and the script started taking shape, I was like, oh, man, like this may actually happen. Like I remember even though I said yes five years before, I started getting nervous thinking, man, everything that I've tried to bury my whole life, I'm not only am I about to dig it up, I'm about to put it on a big screen. And so, and so, yeah, it was it was scary at first. The crazy thing is, and it's totally a God thing, is that in that same eight year span, my wife and I, my wife's brother was killed in a car accident. And so it just really, really, we struggled. It really affected our marriage, just not processing that whole thing. And and so about that same time, eight years ago, uh, you know, separate from them wanting to make a movie, we started going to grief counseling. And this godly counselor. She started showing me how my childhood was attached to the way I re respond, react to things, and who I am as an adult, and and I'd never, I just avoided it like it never happened. And so we started unpacking this thing for about within those first five years, completely separate from the movie thing. So by the time that they approached me, three years later or five years later, when they said that the script started taking shape and the movie's going to happen, I can honestly say that I was in a healthier place to where if it had happened any sooner, I would have been a train wreck. I wouldn't be able to do it. But that's totally a God thing that separate from that, that he started this path eight years ago to where, you know, my wife and my family and my brother and my mom, that we're all kind of had to kind of process through a lot of this stuff to where it's it's easy to tell the story now where it wouldn't necessarily have been that easy before. The movie's about from my childhood living with my dad and, and my mom leaving and and him wrestling with cancer and and to the early years of Mercy Me and starting the band. And, and it's, it's really about how the song I Can Only Imagine came about. I didn't even think about the impact the movie might have on other people that have gone through similar stuff, which when you're in ministry, it seems like the first thing. But I was so just worried about getting the story right or should I even be telling this story that it wasn't until the first screening with an audience where these men started coming up saying, man, I've had similar experience and it's unresolved or I'm that dad or whatever. And I was like, oh, my gosh, it's like somehow the ministry side completely left me during the whole process. I know that it's going to it's going to kind of open some wounds for a lot of people that possibly watch it. Um, you know, for me, that eight-year journey, separate from the movie, if it wasn't for that, of just unpacking, understanding that, you know, 
because for my dad, you know, when especially when my, when my dad died, it was like all was forgiven, like instantly became a saint, so to speak, is what it felt like. And I never, my brother and I both were like, we wouldn't even address the things that happened. It's like, you know, because, and not to mention for those last three, four years, he was just an amazing man. The whole book idea came from, normally you have a book that's written first and it's turned into a movie, and that was not the case. With this one, because they're taking 25 years of my life and packing it into about an hour and 55 minutes, there's some things that aren't necessarily accurate. The scenes and the really hard scenes to watch, sadly, are very accurate, and we, we were very careful not to embellish them or to get it as right as I can remember. But you know, this timeline, like my dad had cancer about five years, and the movie, it might come across, he has it for a couple. They're just kind of mashing everything up to get as much information in and not be a 20-hour movie. That being said, I got the opportunity, because I'm the guy that will Google whatever I can find on a true story. As soon as the credits roll, I want to know more about it. So when I got the chance to write the book, uh, literally while the movie is being made, I jumped on it because it just gives me a chance to go into more detail about, well, this is how it really happened, how long it was, this is where my brother was, or talk about my mom who in the movie leaves and you don't really see her again, and just kind of explain that relationship. It's another amazing redemption story. That being said, when the book was, we were working out the deal, I had mentioned, I was like, man, I've always wanted to, you know, just to be a part of a children's book. And I've got five kids. and. My youngest is, was five at the time. And they were like, well, great, awesome. You know, we're not sure how it's gonna be about abuse, but let's go, and I was like, no, 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 no. I was like, I don't want, the, the two things, I don't want it to be about this story, and I don't want it to be about a child losing a loved one or a pet, because we've had people approach us about that stuff all the time. Nothing against that. It's just, you know, I know, I wanted something that kind of could speak to any kid. And so I said, man, what if it's like, I mean, and I have daughters, and I keep looking at my daughters especially, who will watch something on TV and they're, you, I can see them being influenced by a commercial. Like, do they are they are they skinny enough? Is their hair? I'll just see them kind of comparing themselves to what the world's saying they should be. And and so I've gone to great lengths to tell them, man, you are so beautiful in the eyes of Christ, and and uh, He loves you as you are. And so the children's book, the idea was from a kid's perspective, what would it be like if you could spend a day with Jesus? And the idea is by the end to kind of say, you know, because in a way you are walking with him daily like it's not okay this day's coming and kind of like sometimes people take i can imagine the idea is that he's with you non-stop and then he loves you right where you are and so that's that was my goal was it to be this kind of like like a self-esteem booster and just make them realize that hey all this crazy stuff you're saying is that jesus is with you right now this is not a fairy tale and it wasn't until i became a parent and a husband where i realized man this stuff is deep in me of like just the way that i would react to stuff and the way that i would treat my children sometimes and or maybe i have a short fuse or whatever and and i could see myself going oh man and and just this fear of like could i be like he was and it really scared me and and i didn't want to live in fear like that that's not my identity and um and so going through counseling is what literally not only saved my marriage, but saved my life. You know, just understanding that that's not who I am and being able to kind of break that chain of abuse. And so, you know, when people ask, like, what, how would you encourage others? Like, man, I'm 100% on board for godly counseling and just being able to talk to someone. I think, I think the, uh, the, the, the thing the enemy wants more than anything is for us to be in isolation and to think that we can do it ourselves, which is the absolute worst place to be. Jesus Calling has been a big part of my of, of especially my adult life with my wife. And we've gone through so many transformations of, I grew up in a, a very kind of legalistic system, if you will, growing up. And and really, uh, maybe because of how I was trying to please my dad my whole life, I just kind of transferred that to God to where I felt like I had this holy to-do list of things that I had to, you had to fulfill. And 
if I could spin enough plays, jump through enough hoops, that God would maybe see the good more than the bad. I mean, it's why I started a band and became the overachiever. And uh, I was probably 40 when I just hit a wall. I was like, I can't do it anymore. You know, there's got to be more to this than just being better than other people at this. And um, and that's when I, I think I realized, and, and not to mention we're at the height of our success and just feel like at times my family's hanging on by a thread because I was just, I wasn't present and just going through depression, losing a loved one and a lot of things just kind of, kind of happened at the same time. And um, and just wanted to give, I just wanted to quit. Didn't want to be a professional Christian anymore and stand on stage and talk about this every night. And and it was, we were just finishing an album called The Hurt and the Healer. And I was done. I didn't want to do it anymore. And a dear friend of mine came in my life and reminded me, he's like, hey man, just in case you've forgotten, I know you work really hard, but you know, there's nothing you can do to make Christ love you any more than he already does right now. And so maybe, just maybe, you should stop what you're doing and actually rest in the finished work of the cross. We were first given Jesus Calling when we got married in a 97. And so my wife have gone through Jesus Call. We went through it early on in our marriage. And um, and um, yeah, it was like between this and my utmost or his highest, that's kind of, it's all we kind of cling to for quite a while, especially before we had kids. Then we may have clinged to it more when we had kids because that's when we needed it the most. <laughs> it's definitely a God thing to where there was multiple times to where just uncanny how there would be days to where it's exactly what I needed to hear. And I know that could sound vague and like, well, of course, you know, like have a good day or whatever. I was like, no, you don't understand. Like some of these days in this devotional are, for me, felt very specific. And, and it's gotten me through a lot. You know, sometimes the enemy gets the best of you on a daily basis. He never, he never lets up. And, you know, and, and you know, it, it's, it, it had to go the hard route to figure out what it means to hide the word in your heart and set your mind on things above. And, and, um, and you know, I definitely have the word of God, but I, I think this definitely falls into the category of setting your mind on things above for sure. This one's from August 20th. I'm a God who heals. I heal broken bodies, broken minds, broken hearts, broken lives, and broken relationships. My very presence has immense healing powers. You cannot live close to me without experiencing some degree of healing. However, it is also true that you have not because you ask not. You receive the healing that flows naturally from my presence, whether you seek it or not, but there is more, much more available to those who ask. The first step in receiving healing is to live ever so close to me. The benefits of this practice are too numerous to list. As you grow more and more intimate with me, I reveal my will to you more directly. When the time is right, I prompt you to ask for healing of some brokenness in you or in another person. The healing may be instantaneous or it may be a process. That is up to me. Your part is to trust me fully and thank me for the restoration that has begun. I rarely heal all the brokenness in a person's life. Even my servant Paul was told my grace is sufficient for you when he sought healing for the thorn in his flesh. Nonetheless, much healing is available to those who, whose lives are intimately interwoven with mine. Ask and you will receive. Yeah, that speaks volume to me, volumes to me even, you know, even now because um, a couple of things like I love how sometimes we, we, we tend to think that it's on us. Even the task of asking, it's like, okay, wait a minute, is that on me or whatever? But then I love the next thing it says, and when you do, like, you know, I'll, t I'll show you when it's time to be healed. And it's not something that's, that's uh, I guess in a sense, our responsibility because it's not about us. It's like the cross was enough. And, and, and Christ is the one that does this because sometimes I think we fall into that the bit of works, if you will. Like there's so many things we got to do, and we're earning this, and that's not the case at all. And and so yeah, it's um yeah that resonates uh, on multiple levels. Not only with the obvious story, I can only imagine my dad, but as a parent, I mean I'm I'm 
I'm still writing songs that kind of revolve around the concept because you know my my oldest son was diagnosed when he was uh, with diabetes type one diabetes when he was two he's 16 now and and we just wrote a song not long ago called even if it's just a it's all about having a really bad day and just continuing to be reminded that our lives revolve around this dumb illness and um and I love the part about you know you may not heal at all. To me, I would say that suffering is almost a gift because uh, even with the movie, I remember when they first wanted to make the movie, I said, "Look, we have to show how bad he was so that the redemption, the part of the story, is not watered down." I want them to appreciate that to where even the non-believer says, "Man, this guy's a monster, and this is changing him. Something supernatural's taking place." And so. Uh, and so, yeah, it's like our point was always to make sure that it points back to the, the, the gospel, that Jesus is one that's, that changed my dad and nothing that he did. And, and this definitely resonates with kind of the season I'm in, not only promoting the movie, just being a parent, being a husband, and having to be reminded every day that, that, uh, that it's, it's, it's never been about the stuff that I do, thank God. I got way consumed with trying to please him instead of trust him. And I got to that point, like I was like, you gotta be impressed with me, God. I'm juggling all this stuff at the same time. I'm way better than the rest of them is what it felt like. And, and I was losing everything around me. It felt like that was dear to me. And so I thought at the time that meant I was definitely quitting the band. Like you just told me, stop what I'm doing, rest in the finished work of the cross. I'm, I'm, I'm heading the right direction. And, and, and then the craziest thing that happened, we, my wife and I would say that we got to a point in a healthy way of just not caring like what maybe the record label or radio or people thought we should do because my identity was the mercy me machine. It's like, you know, trying to follow a hit like I can only imagine for your career and don't derail it. So many families are dependent on you and stuff like that. And I was just, I was just done with it. And we got to a point where we didn't care. We're like, you know what? It's, there's, it, this, this stuff isn't important. This is an overflow of a healthy relationship with Christ. And if that's not happening, then what are we doing? So I really thought I was gonna quit. Well, the crazy thing is in not caring, we started falling in love with music again, the whole band. And uh, we cut our shows in half. We moved to Nashville just to, so I could be home with my family more. And we, and we got out of debt, sold all our buses, got everything, and just and thought we were gonna kind of ride off into the sunset. And, and all of a sudden, when we stopped caring about what we thought people wanted to hear from us and started making music that we just absolutely love, we felt like we were 15 starting a band again. The last two albums, Welcome to the New and Life, are kind of that, after that kind of new perspective of the gospel, if you will. And, it's been unbelievable. It's been the greatest journey. There's no way I could be talking about this movie and these other things if we weren't where we are right now. And so I just, you know, I, if I could, if whoever's listening, I would just encourage them that, man, the same thing that, that set me off and got me and kind of changed the whole trajectory of my life is being reminded there's nothing you can do to make Christ love you anymore than he already does. I lived as if I was a bad person trying to be good, only to realize that not because of anything I've done, but because the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells inside of me, that who I actually am is I'm holy, I'm righteous, and redeemed. And the most mind-boggling thing of all is understanding that if Christ is in you, that on your worst possible day, you somehow remain holy is, is a game changer for me. Because that's, I, don't, I, I can honestly say, I don't think I really bought into that for most of my life yet. And so, uh, and so it's just, it's never, it's never been about what we do. If it is, I better die on a good day. But uh, I don't think that's the case. His desire is for us to enjoy every second of our life. And, um, and through the good and the bad and just, and just and, and live a spirit-led life to where it's like every second's an adventure. For more information about Bart's movie, I Can Only Imagine, visit ICanOnlyImagine.com. Look for the DVD version of the movie coming soon to a retailer near you. Bart's book about his life and his children's book, also entitled I Can Only Imagine, are available wherever books are sold. 
We'll continue with the Jesus Calling podcast after this brief message about a free offer from Jesus Calling. Are you looking for a way to keep track of your daily prayers along with Jesus Calling? The Jesus Calling Family Prayer Calendar goes right along with your daily readings from Jesus Calling. Each day begins with a guided reflection, followed by a space for you to fill in your prayers of thanksgiving and special requests. You can get your free Jesus Calling Family Prayer Calendar by visiting jesuscalling.com offers. Visit jesuscalling.com offers to download your free family prayer calendar today. Jim Caviezel is a highly acclaimed actor who came to prominence after his groundbreaking performance as Jesus in the blockbuster movie, The Passion of the Christ. Jim has gone on to choose thoughtful and inspirational roles that speak to his deep faith as a Christian and has had commercial success in both the faith-based and mainstream entertainment world. He speaks to us today about a new movie he stars in called Paul, Apostle of Christ, and gives some background on his faith-filled journey through Hollywood. My name is Jim Caviezel. I got into the acting business when I was about 19 years old. I came to Hollywood at age 22. I kicked around for about 10 years, and I landed a role in The Thin Red Line, and uh, that changed my life. Mel Gibson saw The Thin Red Line and Count of Monte Cristo and came to me to play the role of Jesus, and that took my life in a completely different direction. So many people, when they saw the passion, were drawn very close to Jesus, and many people were repelled from him. I don't think it's so much as the violence, but when people talk about personal relationship with their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, there's nothing more personal than having to be there like his mother was and to watch your own son have to die like that. Many religious stories and many comedies and many dramas are terribly written and don't have a good substance there that is worth playing. Most, especially uh, religious films, are told in a way that um, don't even represent a lot of what I have read in scripture and don't give us a true authentic look in who Jesus is or Apostle Paul. There's a law of writings of the Apostle Paul and what writings are you going to put in it and are you going to hammer someone over the head? We're asked many times by way of analogy putting a square peg into a circular hole. The director, Andrew Hyatt, wrote a tremendous script that I thought was worth telling. And that is why that is the first movie that I had done since The Passion. And believe you me, there is a controversy in this, as there was in The Passion of the Christ. In The Passion of the Christ, the controversy was love. In this one, it is a part of love but it is ardent love, it is forgiveness, forgiving at all costs. Suffering is uh, not natural. Anything that that hurts us physically, we want to avoid, right? If you put your hand on a hot uh, substance of fire, uh, something that's fire, that's hot, and pull your hand away because it hurts. 
but there are things that, for example, if you want to be a great athlete and there's no pill you can take, you have to physically have sore muscles uh, day in and day out. It's when you start realizing, hey, there's a benefit to this soreness. Every time I get really sore, a few days later, I get stronger. And so you start to welcome the suffering because you know you're going to get better. In the same way, it's in our uh, faith that the authenticity of our faith, you know, comes by the way of the cross. My friend Frank was like St. Paul to me. He was my mentor. So I saw myself in that relationship and Frank had just died going into this. So it was a personal experience that I had to delve into. It hurt, but it was the, again, we go back into the way of the, of the suffering of the cross and out of that will be good. And actually in this case would be great. The other part was that, you know, Luke is reminding me of many of the people here in this, you know, that are in the industry that don't know anything about God, that have never read the scripture or anything and were, but have been lost. Um, and Luke is a guy, he's got his life made, you know, he's a doctor, he's successful, he's for whatever reason. He saw Paul and in the film and says, when I saw you preach, I saw Christ in you. They say they'll know that you are Christians by your love, but many of us don't. And I think it has, has to do with the fact that we don't, we don't pray from the heart. We pray in the head. We give lip service rather than soul service. Jim was introduced to Jesus Calling by a friend. He compares how Sarah Young's writing and his new movie both represent how God uses his people to speak to us and shares the love that Christ wants to show us all. Someone brought me the book. It came like one time and then I saw another person that had it. I just know when I hear his voice. I know people will feel loved. It's the authenticity of our faith, you know, comes by the way of the cross. I brought a friend, he doesn't believe in God, doesn't have any religion. And after the movie was over, he uh, uh, his eyes were uh, tearing up and he said, wow, whoever this writer is, it's really good. And I said, why do you say that? And he says, well, he's got good philosophy. You mean what was written? Yeah, what the, what the old guy had said. You mean Paul? He says, yeah. And I said, oh, well, that that's actually in the Bible. Oh, it is? Wow. And a couple of days later, he said, hey, I might want to see your passion of the Christ. It's a great seed planter. That's what people will take away. To find out more about Paul, Apostle of Christ, the movie, please visit paulmovie.com. Next time on the Jesus Calling Podcast, we speak with professional golfers George and Wesley Bryan, also known in the golf world as the Bryan Brothers. The Bryan Brothers earned their place in the world of golf by being skilled golfers who specialize in trick shots. They talk about what it's like to rise up in the world of golf at such a young age and how their faith in God keeps them both grounded. I put my um, value in how good I played on the golf course. And like, if I played bad, I'm like, man, everyone hates me. I'm such an idiot. I'm a failure. And um, so I had this up and down. Like, if I played good, I was great. Um, but like, after, you know, getting saved and like really following Jesus closer, like knowing that like golf and money and all this earthly stuff, it doesn't really matter. Um, once you put that in perspective, it, it really helped me like, 
be a better human. Do you love hearing great stories of faith each week via the Jesus Calling podcast? We want to hear from you. If you haven't already subscribed to the Jesus Calling podcast, visit the Jesus Calling page at iTunes.com and hit the subscribe button. While you're there, we'd love for you to leave us a review and tell us how you feel about the show and what future guests you'd love to see. Your reviews and subscription help us share these stories of faith to more people who need the hope and encouragement of Jesus Calling. If you have your own story to share, we'd love to hear from you. Visit JesusCalling.com to share your story today.